For today's case, we're going all the way to the city of Mons in Belgium, where a gruesome scene unfolded and the streets were littered with trash bags. A police officer found these and what he found inside the bags shook him and his life will never be the same. The one thing that was crystal clear for the investigators was that there was a serial killer in the city of Mons and he was stalking the railroad stations and back streets and preying on the vulnerable and defenseless. I'm Stephanie Morham and this is Wicked Ever After. Since this also goes on YouTube, there's a lot of words I cannot say such as sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape. So in those moments, you might hear me on the podcast say S-A. So I just wanted to give a heads up that as you're listening, um, you might hear something a little bit different. And that's only because I want to be able to post this on YouTube. Please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel. Or if you're listening on my podcast, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. You can just click the like button, which is the thumbs up button also be appreciated and thank you so much for your support and as I've mentioned in many of my videos I do have Invisalign and when I take out my Invisalign to do these videos uh, I sometimes fumble so I am definitely doing the best that I can with the pronunciation of my words and I apologize in advance if I mispronounce a word. So riddled with good and bad history, the city of Mons is close to the border of France. The center of town is comprised of mostly red brick houses that run two to three stories high. A shop is usually on the first floor where the tenants live on the second and third floors. Most buildings have a garden in the back and a smiling face in front, and the average temperatures are around 10 degrees Celsius. But In March of 1997, the safety and security of the citizens of Mons were put to the test when Officer Olivier Mutt, while doing his daily rounds on horseback, discovered several trash bags along Le Rue Emile van der Heide in the village of Kims, which is a stone throw away from Mons. Upon opening this bags, or opening all the bags, he didn't discover rotten food or yesterday's newspaper. Instead, the bags were filled with dismembered body parts. To say this was shocking for this officer would be an understatement. While those bags were being analyzed, more bags were found 24 hours later in the city of Mons. This one contained a woman's torso, which at first glance police determined had been probably surgically detached by her killer. Analysis of the first bags came back as containing body parts of three separate female victims. It was also determined that these women had probably been murdered sometime in 1995, stretching into 1996. Once the torso was analyzed, it was determined that the victim had been murdered just days before the discovery. More horror-filled garbage bags were discovered months later in April near a river, forcing everyone to suspect that there was a serial killer on the loose in their town. Carmilia Russo was only 42 years old when she was reported missing on January 4, 1996. Carmilia was a divorced mother of two, And to make ends meet, she worked at a local supermarket 
and she also sold lingerie door-to-door on the side. On the day she disappeared, she visited her son, who was in prison, and afterwards was seen in a department store near her apartment in Mons. After that, she simply vanished. Friends reported that at the time, she appeared to be going through a depression and was struggling mentally, which ultimately impacted the investigation of her case. A few weeks later, on January 21st, a female pelvis was discovered across the border in France. These remains were not found in trash bags, so initially police assumed she was a sex worker and was using the railroad station to commute like many other women in that profession. Once they heard of her mental struggles and her depression, and with no leads, they determined Carmilla Russo's death was that she unalived herself, and her file ended up in the pile of unsolved cases. It's not until the discovery of the trash bags weeks later that police were able to make any kind of connection between Carmilla's death and the deaths of the other females, officially marking her as a victim of the unknown serial killer. One of the body parts that was discovered near the river belonged to 43-year-old Maxine Bone. Maxine was transgender, as reported in many articles. She was transient. She worked at what we might call sketchy bars in France and in Belgium as well, and she was a former sex worker. She reportedly gave up her sex worker job after she suffered from a car accident. She was declared missing on July 21st, 1996. It was discovered that she had lost all contact with her family and didn't have many friends over the course of her life. It's reported that Maxine also struggled with severe mental health issues and had spent time in a mental health facility at some point before her death. Among the body parts that were discovered, investigators found Maxine's torso. The breast had been cut off, likely as a symbol upon discovering that Maxine was transgender. This provided further proof to the investigators that the killer appeared motivated by sex. Police also speculated that the remains had been dropped further up the river and had floated to their final resting place, waiting to be discovered. At the time Maxine's body was discovered, police still had not connected the case with a serial killer or with Carmelia's case, and Maxine's case also ended up in the unsolved case pile. As more body parts were discovered and the victims' names revealed, the Belgian police force turned to the media for help. Lacking a general direction and evidence pointing to a killer, they decided to share some of their theories with the public in hopes of gaining some new information on who their possible serial killer might be. Police felt that early on, they could confidently say that their serial killer seemed to find something perversely funny about his gruesome activities. They concluded this by pointing out the fact that all of his dumping sites were morbid names like Rue du Dépôt, which means dump street, Chemin de l'Inquiétude, which translates to the path of worry, and the rivers Hain and Trouille, 
which mean hatred and intense fear, respectively. They had also theorized that the killer was most likely a male between the ages of 35 and 40, and who was hyper-intelligent and a man of great strength to be able to carry the amount of body parts around in the bags. Police also deduced that the killer likely had a large van or truck that he used to transport the bags and probably lived on a very large property where he was familiar with the local landscape and had enough room to carry out his crimes unnoticed. Due to how the bodies were found and how the parts were dismembered and cut, investigators were highly certain they were looking for someone with some kind of medical training. The dismemberment and mutilations had been done with such precision. It was almost impossible it was done by someone without some sort of formal training. After the initial theories were sent to the press and told to the community, on July 3rd, 1997, police expanded their theories to say that there could also be a religious or occult, not to be confused with occult, connection to these crimes. Oddly enough, at the time, they came out and ended up refuting their previous claims that he was a potential surgeon. But there was never any reason given onto why they changed their mind. I searched and searched, and it was never mentioned. It was just, we've just decided that he had no medical training. So soon the police had a chief suspect by the name of Marc Zutou. Marc was a serial killer from the French-speaking working-class city of Charleroi, and in 1996 was put in jail after kidnapping six girls and killing at least two of them. So for a couple minutes, we're going to be talking about children being killed, so trigger warning right here. Marc claimed that he only committed these crimes because he was ordered to by a nefarious group composed of the elite in the Belgian society. He said they ordered him to kidnap and torture underage girls so the elite could get their kicks. That is absolutely disgusting. I'm just going to say that. And how fucked up do you have to be? Again. Millions of citizens began to believe that an official cover-up was being done in order to protect a high-profile child SA ring. And Mac's case came to a close bringing down, almost bringing down, the Belgian government. It's unknown if that is actually true, but what we do know is that Marc's murders were vicious and he kept his victims confined to an underground torture chamber for days on end. Marc killed his victims in the province of Hainu, Mons capital. Based on this geography alone, police named Marc as their official suspect in their serial killer case. Unfortunately, the case started to fall apart very quickly because the victims didn't add up. Mac's victims were young, preteens, while their killer's victims were all adult women. It was becoming clear for the investigators that they potentially had the wrong guy. The next victim was discovered to be Nathalie Godard, and at the age of 21 years old, she was the youngest victim. Now the public was referring to him as the Butcher of Mons. Natalie went missing in March of 1997. She had gone through a divorce, and according to those who knew her, she spiraled into substance abuse and started hanging out with the wrong crowd. Natalie started having sex with random men, but accepted very little money, so it's unclear if she considered herself to be a formal sex worker. 
She would be frequently be seen picking up men at the railway station and the bars around it. Due to her substance abuse and life choices, her one daughter was removed from her care, citing evidence of neglect. Police discovered some of Nathalie's limbs in the original nine bags that were found by Officer Olivier Mutt in the initial discovery. However, a couple of weeks later, her head was found in a different bag near the river. Sadly, when the police informed her parents that her body was discovered, they had no idea that her, their daughter was actually missing, pointing to just how alone Natalie likely felt. After identifying Natalie's body, investigators brought in a man who was locally known as the Gypsy, but whose real name was Leopold Bogart. He was known to always be up to no good and was often seen hanging around the railroad station that I mentioned earlier, and the police theorized that many of the victims had actually used that railroad station on a regular basis. So Leopold had some kind of familiarity or connection with the victims and was the last known boyfriend of Nathalie Godard. That's also very suspicious. Because of his connections, he was arrested. However, the investigator's case started falling apart, like the suspect they had before. Over the next few months, it was discovered that Leopold had an alibi for most of the deer's appearances, and he also didn't own a car or a property. Two things the police were super confident that the serial killer had. But it was only when police were able to match his DNA to any of the evidence that he was released and he was ruled out as a suspect. To this day, he's the only suspect that has ever served any time in relation to these vicious murders. While the public tried to keep going about their daily lives, and despite a serial killer walking among them, police continued to hit dead end to dead end even when more victims were being identified. Somewhere around the time when the first bags were found, 33-year-old Jacqueline Leclerc went missing. She was the mother of several children, and I say several because some research articles I read said three, some said four, so I'm just going to go with several. And she also was separated from her husband, appearing to show a pattern between many of these victims. After an ugly separation, Jacqueline was denied custody of her children, and it was mentioned she also had a drinking problem. She cleaned homes for a living, but struggled financially. She was often seen hanging around that same train station that I've mentioned a bunch of times, like the other victims, and it is reported that she also worked as a sex worker, but her sister totally denies that being true. Missing person flyers were hung around town by her family with no leads, and the only activity after her disappearance seemed to be the use of her debit card to get money. Unfortunately, the cameras weren't working to identify anyone. Why are the cameras never working when we're trying to identify somebody in a case? It always happens. Can you please fix your cameras? So this case met the same fate as the other victims, and ended up in the unsolved case file. Later, her arms and legs were discovered in the initial bags found in March 1997. The last known victim of the Butcher of Mons was Begonia Valencia, a 38-year-old who went missing in the summer of 1997, after several more bags had been found. 
signaling that the serial killer was still very active, despite an investigation being underway. Like many of her fellow victims, Begonia was a divorced mother of a daughter and was suffering from depression and possibly schizophrenia. She had spent some time in a mental health facility, but allegedly didn't seem to be getting any better, as it was noted by her thin appearance, her struggle with alcohol and substance abuse, and she had several sores on her body. In fact, she was so small that when her skull was found in October of that same year by two children playing in a field, investigators initially thought she was a teenager because she was so tiny. Despite her family reporting her missing, there were no leads until her body was found. Six months after discovering her skull, her spinal column and teeth were found near the same field. Nearly a decade later, a former neighbor was interviewed, and they said that Begonia took a local bus every evening, making it quite possible that her killer learned of her patterns of transportation and ended up taking her near the bus station. To this day, a wreath is dropped into the river to honor her life, and we have no idea who this person is. Police remained at a loss, with the only new evidence coming in was the severed body parts. They drew several similarities from the background of the victims, clearly seeing a pattern, but even those patterns didn't amount to much direction in the serial killer himself. It was noted that all the victims had stayed in a local mental health facility at one point before their death leading the police to theorize that a fellow resident or employee might have been responsible for their deaths. However, after investigating, police said they came up empty. According to some people in the public, there was a seeming disinterest by the local detectives during parts of this case. So it's unknown how well that theory was actually investigated. So perhaps there could be more to that theory that needs to be fleshed out, but for the time being, That didn't go anywhere either. The case went cold for several years, with no new leads and no new bodies had appeared related to the Butcher of Mons. That is until 2009, when in an odd twist, police arrested Smile Tulia. So in order to understand how we got to this arrest, we need to briefly go back to September 15th, 1990. Seven years before those initial trash bags were found, a black trash bag was found on that day, not far from the Brooklyn Navy Yard in New York City. Upon noticing that it was leaking blood, a woman discovered the bag and immediately called the police. A detective responded to the call and found that the bag contained two arms and one leg. A few hours later, a bag containing a woman's torso was also found. Does this not sound familiar and gruesome? 11 days later, the initial analysis was complete, and it was disclosed that the victim appeared to be a missing 61-year-old woman named Mary Beale. Mary lived in a small apartment off of Moshulu Parkway. I hope I said that correctly, my fellow New Yorkers. And owned several dogs that she walked religiously every morning. When neighbors failed to see her out on her morning walks, they reported her missing. Mary worked as a part-time court translator. One of the languages she spoke was Serbo-Croatian, 
Because of her bilingual skill, she had worked on a custody battle case for a Yugoslavian couple, Smile Jolich, and his wife. Fun fact, Smile was actually the alias for Smile Tuya, the guy the Belgian police arrested in 2009. Stay with me, there's a little bit more to this story. So after Mary's body was discovered, Smile fled the United States for Europe, which is not suspicious at all, right? Like, no, not suspicious. But it gets even more eyebrow-raising when police discover later in 2009 that Smile had a romantic relationship with Mary, prompting his arrest in Belgium. All right, so we're back in 2009, and Smile has been arrested as a suspect in several murders in the United States, Belgium, Albania, and Montetegro. Apparently, investigators thought this guy had a lot of blood on his hands. American authorities wanted him extradited to the United States to stand trial for the murder of Mary. But since Smile was living in Montetegro at the time, they didn't extradite their citizens. So he stood trial in Europe for the cases. In a weird twist of fate, one of those cases was Smile's wife, who went missing in Albania several years prior. Not suspicious as well. And police were convinced he had killed her. The case against him for the murders of Mary was pretty damning. He not only dated Mary while he lived in New York, but his wife, who he later was accused of killing, had left threatening messages on Mary's answer machine, alluding to the affair between Mary and her estranged husband. Police also found bloodstains inside his Bronx apartment and fingerprints were taken during Mary's investigation were a match for him. He was ultimately convicted of the murder of Mary and was sentenced to 12 years in the Montetegro prison. However, he didn't serve very long because he died behind bars in 2012. Due to the similarities between Mary and the Butcher of Mons, it's highly suspected that Smile was also the Butcher of Mons, and he remains the number one suspect on the list at this time. While much of the evidence and theories point to Smile, there were two other major suspects in the Butcher of Mons case. One was Jacques Antoine, a French doctor who in 2012 was arrested for assaulting a woman. Prior to his arrest, his son had been writing letters to the French police accusing his father of being the Butcher of Mons. His son claimed that he had been living with his dad in Mons at the time of the murders and that he had seen his dad carrying around black trash bags. However, the son, who had written the letters, spent a lot of time talking about his father's love of guns, which didn't match the serial killer's profile at all, and because no victim had had any gun wounds. It was also discovered that Jacques didn't drive a vehicle that an eyewitness testimony had given during the investigation. All of this seemed to rule out Jacques as a likely culprit, and there was never enough evidence to actually arrest him. Another suspect was the cannel murderer, John Sweeney, who was a British citizen sentenced to life in prison in 2011. He was convicted of the hacking murders of 31-year-old Paula Fields and 33-year-old Melissa Halstead. The timing and location of these murders signify that it's possible that John could have lived in Belgium and been the butcher of Mons. He was also accused of attempted murder by his former girlfriend, but again, no conclusive evidence had been found and the charges for being the butcher of Mons had never been filed. 
For now, it's only speculation if justice was really served and if Smile was responsible for dismembering and taking these women's lives. With Small being deceased and no official confession, we can only hope that the Butcher of Mons was truly taken off the street, sparing multiple lives. While the families may never get closure, we can certainly hope that these victims, who seem to have suffered so much in their lifetime, are now free of their mental pain and burdens and they truly have found peace. In the comments, let me know your thoughts, opinions, and theories on this case. Also, don't forget to share your case suggestions so I know what you want to hear about next. Please hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening, YouTube or my podcast, and you can stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at this is Stephanie Moran. Until next time, stay safe out there.